All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me again to Genesis chapter 3. This morning, we are going to talk more about sin. Last week, we studied what the theologians call the fall into sin. And this week, we are going to study really what is the fallout from the fall, the the consequences from the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so let's begin this morning by reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to 24. It says this, And they, Adam and Eve, after they had taken of the fruit, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, I love this book. The Bible is life to our souls, but the Bible is an ugly book. It's ugly, and what I mean by that is that it has a lot of ugliness within it. If you have spent any amount of time reading beyond verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or beyond verses like Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, if you have read beyond those verses, you quickly realize that the Bible is not always pleasant. It gets ugly, and it gets ugly really quickly. 
In the book of Genesis alone, the first book of the Bible, we see murder and deceit. We see daughters sleeping with their fathers. We see the worst possible expressions of of sibling rivalry. We see mass murder and extreme vengeance. We even see horrific things like gang rape. And that's just in the first book of the Bible. But it continues in that way through the rest of Scripture as well. There are horrific war crimes in the Bible. There is racial prejudice and injustice. There are all kinds of of gruesome killings in God's Word. Do you know the story of of J.L.? J.L. is the woman from Judges chapters 4 and 5. And so when this woman, J.L., offers to to hide Sisera, who was a man fleeing from his enemies, she deceives him, offers him a drink, and brings him into her tent, offers to hide him under the rug, and then sneaks up on him and drives a tent peg through his skull. And then in the next chapter, there's a song that's sung about it. Or how about Judges 19, maybe the lowest point of the Old Testament, when a Levite concubine who had been abused by a mob of men, the Levite Levite takes his concubine and cuts her into 12 pieces and sends them limb by limb to to the 12 tribes of Israel as a statement of the evil that had been done. Friends, the Bible has a lot of ugliness in it. It's gruesome. It's not always pleasant to read. I hesitated to even mention some of the things I just listed because we have children in the room today with us. Think about that. Think about the fact that, that, that how crazy it is that, that there are parts of God's word that we want to cover the ears of our children when they are read aloud. Why? Why is it so bad? Well, the answer to that question is sin. The Bible is so ugly because it is the historical account of how sin has entered into this world through our rebellion against God and how sin has distorted this world from God's original design. That the Bible has so much ugliness in it because it is an accurate depiction of how ugly this world is now because of sin. But... But God's grace is able to redeem this world and his people out of this ugliness. God's grace is able to save us from the wages of sin, which is death. Friends, here's our main idea for our message this morning. Your sin is worse than you first think, but God's grace is far greater than you can even imagine. God, your sin is worse than you first think, but God's grace is greater than you can even imagine. And we're going to now look at this by by looking at five points. This is the first point. Point number one, your sin is worse than you think. Let's do a bit of review from last week very quickly. Last week we saw from verses 1 to 7 that sin entered into this world when, when Adam and Eve listened to the lies of God's enemy, Satan. Sin entered into this world when, when Satan, who is not at all equal to God and is actually just a fallen angel who is now at enmity with God, but yet who is still in some sense a tool in God's hand to tempt God's people, sin entered into this world when this Satan lied about God's word and about God's gracious authority, and Adam and Eve believed him and stepped away from God's gracious rule. They wanted to live how they wanted to live. 
They wanted to rule this world as God had designed them to rule this world, but they didn't want to do it as submitted beings under God. No, they wanted to do it as equals to God. Church, this is what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is not living according to God's perfect design, but but choosing our own way apart from him. Sin is failing to value God's word as the most valuable thing in the entire universe, which it is. God's word is perfect. It is a treasure for our soul, and we are happiest when we follow it because it unites us in a relationship to God himself. But sin is missing that mark, and it is to live according to our own wisdom instead. And this sin, this outright rebellion against the king, it breaks relationship with God. It actually puts us at enmity with God. Here's what sin is. Sin is cosmic rebellion. It is cosmic treason against the king of this universe. Scripture tells us repeatedly that those who are in sin are enemies of God. Adam and Eve, in a sense, joined Satan's rebellion against God when they fell into sin. But what we also saw together last week was that this fall into sin was not just a fall for Adam and Eve as as two individuals in isolation. No, Adam and Eve were representatives for all of humanity. They stood before God on our behalf. And therefore, church, we too are all guilty. We too, because of Adam and Eve, are at enmity with God. We too have committed cosmic rebellion. Do you know what it's like? It's It's like if one king declares war against another king. That king is declaring war not just for himself, but for the kingdom that he represents. His kingdom is now at war with the other kingdom. Adam was our representative king, and when he declared war against the living God through his disobedience, all of humanity behind him fell into sin as well. We are all now opposed to God. And church, we can see this in verses 14 to 19. It's it's very clear in the curse against the serpent and, and the judgment against Adam and Eve that these things are not just against them in this moment, but against the descendants who are going to come after them. These these curses and these judgments are against their children as well. And folks, this is the very first way that we see that our sin is worse than we think. What we begin to see here is the biblical category of original sin and of you and I having a sinful nature. Friend, did you know that about yourself? Did did you know that you are inherently sinful? The the world doesn't want you to believe that. Your secular psychologist doesn't want you to believe that. They want you to believe that you are inherently good. You might make a few mistakes here and there. But scripture tells us something very different. We are inherently bad. We, we read it earlier from Psalm 51. King David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, By nature we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're, we're sinful by nature. It's, it's part of who we are as a human race who has fallen into sin. And folks, listen. We see evidence for this all over the place, don't we? If, if you are a parent of a young child, you know that we have a sinful nature, don't you? Like, there was never a moment when I had to come up to one of my kids and say, hey, hey, sit down, I want to teach you a lesson. This is how you tell a lie. 
okay? There was never a moment when I had to go up to one of my kids and say, all right, sit down, here's a lesson for you. This is how you get angry. No, it never happened. It just naturally flowed from who they are. Why? Because it's part of their nature. It's part of all of our nature. Every human being that has been born into this world since Genesis 3 has been born into sin. It's now a part, in a sense, of our, of our fallen DNA. And friend, we, we don't need long theological arguments to prove this point. We prove this point to ourselves and to those around us every day of our lives. I prove it with my sinful anger. I prove my sinful nature with my lustful thoughts. I prove my sinful nature with my selfishness. I prove it with my impatience and my pride and my laziness and my lack of love and devotion and affection to my God. And so, yes, our problem with sin is worse than we think. But listen, while this is really bad news, this also explains a lot, doesn't it? If you've ever wondered why you tend to make so many mistakes in life and why relationships can be so easily broken and why, why life doesn't seem to be as easy as you want it to be, the Bible's trying to give you an answer here. It's because of sin. Your many problems, at least in part, come from your sinful heart before God. Have you ever had, in, either in your home or in, in your car, have you ever smelled something bad and not known where it was coming from in life. And so there's these moments when something's wrong and you, ha you have to hunt it out and you have to find out where that smell is coming from. I remember years ago when my kids were little, we had this, this moment where this one section of our house smelled horrific and we couldn't figure out what it was. We searched everywhere. We turned everything over, could not figure it out. Weeks later, after dealing with this smell, we, we moved the couch again and out from one of the cushions dropped an old dirty diaper just sitting there. It was like, oh, that's what it was this whole time. I remember other moments when we had like this infestation of, of fruit flies. I'm like, where is that coming from? And we clean all the cabinets. We wipe everything down. Could not find it. And then months later, we find like this half-eaten apple core in, in the toy room behind one of, one of the toys. Friends, that's the way it can be with our lives. We, we know something's wrong. We see all the problems and we, we sniff it out. We say, our lives are supposed to be cleaner than this. We can't seem to keep healthy relationships and friendships. We, we get angry a lot more than we think that we should. We have, we have this lust problem that no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to control. So, something smells wrong. Things don't, these things don't seem right. Well, Scripture wants us to find the rotting apple in our lives. Scripture wants us to see that there's a, a dirty diaper stuck in the couch. Why? Just so that we can feel bad about it? No, so that we can begin to find ways by his grace to deal with it and to change. And so, yes, friends, your sin is worse than you think. You, you have inherited sin, and by now you have a long history of actual sin. Apart from Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Apart from Jesus, you have very little hope, and you cannot hide this reality. You can't hide it from God. You can't hide it from others. You can't even hide it from yourself. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, you cannot hide your sin from God. 
Look at verse 8 with me. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Immediately, friends, immediately we should sense how bad this situation is. God, God created Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with him, to live at peace with him, to, to commune with him, to have relationship with him. But now, now there's a problem. There's a big problem because as God comes to fellowship with his people, they're, they're not waiting eagerly to have fellowship back with him. No, they're hiding from him, even fleeing from him, hiding in the trees. Why? Well, because sin brings shame and, and sin breaks our relationship with a holy God. One commentator says about this moment that the trust of innocence is now replaced with the fear of guilt. Because of their guilt before God, Adam and Eve's first instinct is to hide from God. And now it needs to be said that that is a right response to their sin before God. Because of who God is in his love and in his purity and in his holiness and in his generosity towards us, when we sin, we should want to hide from him. Friend, if you have never felt shame about your sin before God, you either don't get what sin is or you don't understand God's holiness. But folks, what we see here is that though they wanted to hide, Adam and Eve are completely unable to hide their sinfulness from God. In verse 9, God, God calls directly to Adam. He, he didn't need to search for him. He knew exactly where he was, and he speaks directly to him. And so we see here that you and I cannot hide our sinfulness from God. In Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 7, God says this, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. He sees all things. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't hide your sin from God. He sees all and he knows all. Nothing can be hidden from him. But listen, like Adam and Eve, we try, don't we? We try to hide our sin from God. In our sinfulness, we're just like them, and we all try to hide our sin from God's sight. Now, we may all try to do it in different ways, but we all try to hide our sin. In fact, when it comes to our sin before a holy God, I think that there are primarily two kinds of people in this world, two, two kinds of people who try to deal with their sinfulness before God in, in two very distinct ways. First of all, you, you have the people who try to hide their sin from God by suppressing the truth about God. And so this first group of people deals with their sin by convincing themselves that, that how they act does not really matter because God's not even really there and therefore sin doesn't really even really exist. And so, so many of these people often live crazy lives. They, they party hard, they go crazy, they do what they want to do. We could call these people the, the prodigal people from the, the, the parable from Jesus about the prodigal son. They live in, in careless lives. Others of these people may not, not live crazy lives, but they just don't care as much about how they live. They, they don't allow themselves to be controlled by the thought that there is a right and a wrong way to live. 
This world is, is filled with people in this category. Like Adam and Eve, these people try to, to hide from God, but they do it by acting as if he's not there because as soon as you admit that God is there, then you have to begin to pay attention to what he says, and many don't like that. But the second group of people is those who try to hide their sin from God by, by doing the exact opposite of that first group. The, the second group of, of people are those that, that know that there is a right and wrong way to live, but they hide their sin from God by, by trying to follow every rule that they can so that it doesn't look like they have any sin to hide from God. And we all know these people too. Sadly, many of them in and outside of the church. And so like Adam and Eve who, who tried to hit, hide behind the, the trees in the garden, so we can try to hide our sinfulness from God behind our empty religiosity, and our our godless moralism. This sort of people try to to live a good life. They they look good on the outside, but in reality, they are just as sinful as, as everyone else. And so listen, you could summarize it in this way. You have the rule breakers, the first group, those who act as if there is no right or wrong way to live. And you have the rule makers, those who think that they can live such good lives that they won't ever have to need to deal with their hidden sins in their hearts before God. We all try to hide our sins from God. But whoever we are, we need to hear this morning that our sin is worse than we think. We cannot hide our sins from God, and Scripture actually says that God is going to hold us accountable for our sins. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, your sin can't be blamed on others. It can't be blamed on others. So very briefly, notice with me how things develop in this passage. Verse 8, Adam and Eve try to hide from God. Verse 9, God calls directly to them and asks them what has happened. And then look at verse 12. Adam does not come clean. He doesn't own what he has done before God, but rather he blames his wife and then he even blames God himself. Look at verse 12. He says, it was the woman whom you gave to me, God. He, he tries to pass the buck to get out from under God's scrutiny by looking in a different direction. And then look at verse 13. Eve does exactly the same thing as she turns and blames the serpent. And so while God does indeed then turn and pass judgment on the serpent because he was to blame for some of this, God does not at all ignore the part that both Adam and Eve played in this. And church, I think that's important for us to to notice together this morning because it can be very tempting to blame our sin on other people or on other things around us. We do this all the time. We blame our parents for how they raised us. We blame our coworker who tempted us and asked us to steal company funds along with them. We, we blame our children's disobedience for why we get angry. We blame social media who just happened to put that alluring ad onto our news feed so that we are tempted to sin. We can try to blame all these other things all the time, but as we see here, God does not allow for it. He doesn't ignore the fact that other people affect us. He he knows that other outside influences are very real and they can tempt us greatly, but he doesn't allow all the blame to be found outside of us. He holds us accountable for our own sin. 
And while this is uncomfortable for us, because we all like to blame others for our mistakes, this is also a very good thing because until we accept the part that we played in the problem, we cannot see the effect that sin has had on us, the consequences that it has brought in our personal need for God's grace. And that brings us to our fourth point. Point number four, your sin comes with consequences. We see this again in verses 14 to 19, and, and we don't have time to focus on each and every part of these judgments from God, but, but here is, is the summary of these judgments against the, the serpent and Eve and Adam, where there was once joyful life and peace, there is now painful death and sorrow. Where there was once joyful life and peace and harmony, there's now painful death and sorrow and discord. Adam and Eve's God-given roles to to have children and, and to have dominion over this world. Both of those roles are now, God says, going to be difficult and full of pain. Notice how many times there are there's the word pain in these few verses. The curse of sin has entered in. And not only is there physical pain and sorrow, even more so, there is relational pain. And sorrow. Look at verse 16. God says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Rather than unity in their God given roles as as husband and wife, there's now disunity and and jealousy and strife and and anger and and pushing against one another. It's not working like it once did. But listen, while this is bad, And while we feel the weight of this every day of our lives as we deal with relationships, still there is no consequence for their sin that was greater than how their sin affected their relationship with God himself. Look at verse 24. It says that God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of sin, they are cast out of God's presence. They cannot have relationship with him as long as they are marked by this sinfulness. And so notice how God places a cherubim, a a, a strong angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the garden. That, That cherubim with the flaming sword is a sign of God's judgment. Humanity cannot enter back into the goodness of God's presence while remaining in this sinful state. They cannot enter into God's presence as sinners without that flaming sword falling down upon them in judgment. And so listen, do you remember just a few weeks ago how we noticed that the tabernacle and the temple later on in Scripture, how those things are patterned after the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? We, we saw together that the tabernacle was, was imaged a lot like the garden, a lot of garden imagery in the tabernacle and in the temple in order to remind us of what it was like to live in God's presence. Well, that garden imagery continues when we read in Exodus 26 that within the tabernacle and temple, there was a very thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The the curtain protected the Ark of the Covenant, which was where the goodness of God's presence was to rest. And do you know what it says about that curtain? It says this, and you shall make a veil of blue 
and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. There was a cherubim sewn into the fabric so that it would guard the way into God's presence. This, this thick curtain which, with a cherubim sewn into it was a daily reminder for God's people that there was no way back into God's presence without the fiery sword coming down in judgment against them. This is the greatest consequence of our sin against a holy God. The wrath of God against our sin. The wages of sin is death. Because God is a just God. He must punish our sin. And so he is committed to punish those who have done wrong. And so he casts us out of his presence. And he will not allow us back in while in our sinful state. Why? Because he would have to judge us once and for all. On our own, we have no hope of ever restoring our relationship to this holy God. We cannot enter back in because of our sin. This is how bad our sin is. Our sin is worse than we think. It's a part of our, our fallen DNA. We cannot hide from our sin from God. We cannot blame our sin on others. And our sin deserves the wrath and the judgment of God, it deserves death itself. And so, where do we go? What do we do? That brings us to our fifth and final point this morning. Point number five, church, your sin is not beyond the reach of God's grace. Your sin is not beyond the reach of God's grace. Things seem really bad. The, the curse against the serpent and the, the judgment against Adam and Eve seem to leave very little hope for change. The world is now broken and it's growing in its ugliness all the time. There doesn't seem hope for this fallen humanity. What's going to happen? But we are not without hope. And we see how this is, how we are not without hope even in our text this morning. Even in our passage, which is about the judgment of God, even here in Genesis chapter 3, we see glimmers of hope. First of all, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 with me. God is cursing Satan, and he says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. God is saying in that moment that while Satan thinks that he has won Adam and Eve over to his rebellion against God, God is actually going to begin to redeem his people, and there will now be a long line of descendants, men and women who, who live for Satan, and a long line of descendants of men and women who live for God. In God's curse against Satan, we see the start of humanity's struggle against sin and darkness. But we also see this. Satan has not fully won humanity over to his side as he first thought. This, this warfare that God is speaking of shows that all is not lost. The battle is not done. Satan has not won the day. And even more so, there is a line here that gives even more hope than that. And speaking about this battle that will exist between Satan and Eve's descendants, God says this, but he 
shall bruise your head to the serpent, and to the serpent you shall bruise his heel. God seems to focus in on a very specific descendant, a son who would come, a son of Eve who would be born and who would do great harm to Satan. Because of these words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this passage has been described as the first glimpse of the gospel after the fall into sin. And so whether it's specifically a messianic text or not, we don't really know, but we do know that it speaks of a decisive moment in this battle between Satan and humanity. A day is coming when a descendant of Eve will strike back at Satan. And how will he defeat Satan? Well, in order for the schemes of Satan to be defeated, this future descendant of Eve would have to be able to reverse the consequences of our sin. This descendant of Eve would would have to deal with our inability to enter back into God's presence. This descendant of Eve would have to find a way to deal with the cherubim and the fiery sword of God's judgment that waits for you and for me in our sin. And so how does this descendant fix the problem? We know how. And it is the story of the gospel. This descendant who is Jesus, who is God himself in human flesh, who was born into this world and who lived a perfect life and then became our substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. He was our substitute under the wrath of God. God's holy, just wrath was poured out on him and not on us so that we would not have to die. And so we, who were without hope because of our debt and how great it was, are now able to be forgiven. Because Jesus satisfied the demands of God's wrath against our sin by dying in our place. He removed the stain which kept us from entering back in. And do you know how he did that? He did that as he died on the cross and as he hung on that cross in agony hour after hour. He came to a point when he declared, it is finished. Mission accomplished and he he breathed his last he gave up the spirit he died and in that moment the gospel writers are so intentional to tell us that the curtain of the temple that had the cherubim sewn into it keeping us separated from God keeping us from his presence that curtain was torn in two the the way was made open the The greatest consequence of our sin against God, our broken relationship with him, our inability to come into his presence, done away with. Relationship restored. And so through faith in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. Our shame can be covered and our relationship can be restored. Look in our text this morning. Did did you notice how God made clothes for Adam and Eve? He takes initiative towards them in their sin and he, he covers their shame. Despite their rebellion, God moves towards them. He restores their relationship. He covers their shame and he begins the story of redemption that will ultimately bring them back to himself. 
And in this text, we see that Adam and Eve respond in faith to what God has done. They believed in God. In verse 20, it says that Adam renamed the woman Eve, which means mother of all the living, an indicator that they believed that God truly would bring life out of all this death. And so Adam and Eve seem to have had faith in God's promises that these curses against their sin were not the end of the story. They seem to believe that through faith in this future descendant who would one day come, they could be saved from the wrath of God which was over their heads. They believe. And they are clothed by God. Their shame is taken away. Relationship is restored. And so listen, we see here that there is a third way to deal with our sins before God. Earlier we talked about those who try to hide their sins from God in two different ways. One way by suppressing truth about God and living however they want to live. And, and those who, who try to hide their sin by acting, actively trying to live a moral life. Neither of them working out. There's a third option. The third option is for those who want to bring their sin fully. Who don't want to hide their sin who don't need to hide their sin because they can acknowledge it and they can bring it before the holy God. They can confess their sinfulness to him. They can admit that their lives are broken, that they have rebelled against his word, that they have not obeyed, they have spit in his face, and that they need to be saved from the wrath of God against their sin. And when we do that, God will show us that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And if we believe in him, God will no longer hold those sins against us. And relationship will be restored. Our shame will be covered. Friend, you have not ever committed a sin that Christ's blood cannot wash from your account. It can't be done. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we will be made whole again. We will be accepted in. We will not need to stand far off. We will not be, need to be cast out. We will not need to be expelled. God the Father will say, come in because you are washed by the blood of my son. And though this world will continue to have the ugliness of sin all around us, our lives will begin to change. Though we will not be free from our sinful nature until that final day when we see him face to face, we will begin to grow. Sin will not mark us more than anything else. God's grace will, will be changed and God will receive all the glory and all the praise for the things that he has done. Your sin is far worse than you think, but God's grace is far, far greater than you can even imagine.